technology is on the rise and it's time for us dental students to get in the know. Welcome to On the Cusp, a podcast segment of the business of drilling, where students help students learn about dental technology. Welcome back to On the Cusp. My name is Seb and my co-hosts here are... Hi, I'm Elena. Hi, I'm Rachel. So it's us three again, and we're here and back for our fourth episode. We teamed up with the Debbie Academy, which is a student-run group that aims to educate dental students on financial and business literacy. This is our fourth episode of our new technology segment, and so get ready to explore the world of dental lasers. So we're excited to introduce to this month's OTC discussion, Dr. Praveen Arani. So Dr. Arani is both a dentist and oral pathologist. He completed a joint PhD residency program at Harvard University and has two certificates in clinical translational research from Harvard Medical School, as well as the National Institute of Health. Dr. Arani has pursued postdoctoral fellowships at the Indian Institute of Sciences in Bangalore and the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda and the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences and Weiss Institute in Cambridge. Following his training, he is an assistant clinical investigator at the National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research, uh, as well as the NIH in Bethesda. Dr. Arani is currently an assistant professor in oral biology at the School of Dental Medicine, University at Buffalo, New York. Given Dr. Arani's background in light therapy and tissue and wound healing, we are so very excited to have him with us today to talk all things laser dentistry. With that being said, welcome Dr. Arani. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Savarwal, uh, Bhavya, Alida, Rachel, and Seb uh, for hosting this and look forward to getting started. So uh, I guess just to give it some structure, I made some points. Uh, I give this talk a lot because I talk about lasers in dentistry quite a bit. Um, I usually talk about one of the rather unique aspects of lasers in dentistry, which I'll get to eventually. But uh, in general, I like to begin by talking about just lasers in dentistry, period, uh, which yeah. basically is surgical lasers or dental lasers. Mm-hmm. So I titled this talk Lasers in Dentistry, and um, these are my disclosures. I am funded by all of these companies and by the federal and the state government. Uh, I also put up this disclosure about these organizations that are dedicated to promoting a particular kind of laser application called photobiomodulation. And uh, that is actually the central focus of my research lab and my clinical studies. So I guess um, in a nutshell, uh, dentistry is all about trying to remove damaged tissue or infected tissue. And if you think about it in terms of caries, in terms of periodontal disease, our primary goal is to remove that noxious agent or destroyed tissue so that we can either replace it with materials or allow the normal healing process to proceed. There are also situations where we want to promote the underlying healing response. And these are examples that we commonly see in the oral cavity where uh, either due to underlying immune disease or trauma, we want the healing to occur more quickly. Everything from pizza burns to uh, hot tea or hot coffee can cause discomfort. What can we do to improve the healing response? Now, interestingly enough, light is capable of doing all of those three things, which is removing noxious stimuli, preventing infection or disinfecting, 
and simulating the underlying healing response. And if you think about it, light is a very unique physical um, attribute because it can, we talk about, uh, you know, distance between stars and light years. And we talk about the smallest forces holding cells or microparticles or subatomic particles together with light forces, electromagnetic forces. So string theory and all these concepts of light. So light spans the smallest to the largest of scales that we understand. So not surprisingly, light has a role in biology and in applications in medicine and dentistry. So our focus uh, in the three uh, different applications that I'll talk to you today is about surgical and non-surgical light applications. And it is based on the fact that light can do these unique things. When we talk to an audience about lasers and light treatments, people do not believe that a single laser unit or a device can do all these cool things. Uh, so we point to you know what almost all of us now have in our uh, either in our pocket or in our uh, we carry it around a smartphone and a smartphone is capable of performing different functions. It can provide voice, it can provide internet, Wi-Fi, uh, you know Bluetooth, and you know uh, near uh, infrared near field communication. So all of these are different ways that a single device can communicate and allow you to communicate with your peers and uh, the, the world as a whole. So interestingly enough, light is capable of doing that. And when you learn about light, um, you learn about the way, um, what is light, right? Most people always start off with, you know, Einstein's theory of lasers and, you know, how spontaneous emission of light can create all these cool things. Uh, unfortunately, not too many people emphasize what happens when light enters tissue. And that is one of the major um, deficiencies in how lasers is being taught in dentistry, in medicine, in pretty much uh, uh, globally, there has been a lack of focus on the biological aspect. And we do understand a lot about light. So if you look at the simple chart here, uh, we are talking about how light can disrupt tissues. You know, all those cool movies that you watch where, you know, you're zapping people with light and they go poof and they disappear. That's because light is transferring so much energy so quickly that it vaporizes and disrupts tissue. And that is your photo disruption or photo-induced ablation. And the best example for this is Lasix in the eye, right? You always hear about people who point laser pointers and cause problems, but we do Lasix with lasers in the eye and we do a really good job. These are common procedures now. So if you know exactly how to focus your light and what you're trying to do, in your target, we can use it in the most sensitive light organ in your tissue, in your body, the eye. So we point to that as one of the best surgical applications of light with biological tissue. And it's based on this fact that you're transferring energy so quickly that you disrupt the biological target. And that is the whole fundamental basis for surgical laser application. The photo-induced ablation, photo-induced disruption. Um, if you can destroy biological tissue, you can definitely destroy biofilms and microbes. So that is the concept of photothermal disinfection, where you're using light to destroy microbes or, you know, communities of biofilms. And all of this, as you, as you read more about lasers in dentistry, especially in perio, you will see that people have used this very effectively, both for curatage, for disinfection, as well as for 
uh, improving or making incisions and excisions. What of most people have not heard about is, oh, one other point about that is, uh, and I'll come to this when I'm talking about surgical lasers, is the fact that there is a thermal, photothermal effect with high dose light treatments. And this is really, really important because it creates coagulation as you cut. And that's one of the big advantages of using a laser versus a blade or a curette. And I'll come back to that when I uh, talk about the surgical lasers. What most people are not familiar with are non-surgical applications of light. And uh, there are two major applications. One is photodynamic therapy. The other one is photobiomodeling, which I said, like I said, uh, that's the central area of our research. So uh, at this point, uh, do you guys have any broader questions about lasers in dentistry um, that I may be able to answer? I think you summarized the the uses of it quite beautifully. And I think I'm just curious to learn a little bit about maybe the different types of lasers that are available. Right. So um, uh, what I did not talk about light applications in clinical dentistry is your, you know, illuminating loops or your improved chair side lighting and also lasers for manufacturing and for diagnosis. Uh, we think of optical imaging as the next big wave. We are all familiar with radiographic imaging, and now digital intraoral cameras are very common. So are light scanners, right? You can even use uh, light impressions uh, by scanning them with 3D lasers. Um, I, I obviously am not talking about that in terms of imaging. There are some more advanced imaging technologies, such as optical coherence tomography, which is very standard in the eye, but it's coming to dentistry in terms of diagnosing caries and periodontal disease. So uh, those are topics that we normally don't think about. Those are more diagnostic and, you know, enabling clinical care. Um, and they are really important. So just to be comprehensive, uh, those are the other applications of light that uh, we are not going to talk much about today. But happy to answer any questions you guys might have about. Um, so when we think about clinical applications of um, uh, surgical lasers, we normally think about making incisions, excisions, curating, or disinfecting. And like we just saw in that slide before this, it is based on the fact that you can ablate tissue very, very quickly. You're transferring energy so quickly into the biological target that it vaporizes. And that's the fundamental basis for surgical light. You can do it with enamel. You can do it with the gingiva. You can do it with biofilm. You can do it whichever your target is. Uh, you can basically uh, bring that about. So here are some examples of lasers in dental clinics. And um, some of the images here are uh, diode lasers, which are restricted to soft tissue applications. Um, as you can see, they are pretty small. They are like a little uh, curing light unit. Um, that's the best analogy I can give. Uh, very, very compact. You can put them on you know, your chair, your chair side. Uh, the ones in the other side of the slides are a much, much larger. And they are the heart tissue or all tissue units. Uh, which, as you can see, many of them have wheels at the bottom, so you have to wheel it into your surgical suite, and uh, sometimes you can, if you have a dedicated operatory, they can live in that space. Um, again, just looking at them, you can tell that some of them are expensive, some of them are not so expensive. Um, if you're thinking of including them in your clinical practice, um, I saw some of the questions you guys had on your list, is um, how do I accommodate the footprint? How much will it cost? How, how, much, how can I recover? The, uh, the different procedures. 
And again, some of them you can see have like articulating arms or long fibers. So when you're thinking about, um, you know, how am I going to actually operate? Where my assistant is going to sit? Uh, these are things that you'll have to figure out uh, when you're planning your uh, either a dedicated suite or when you wheel this in to do certain procedures. So um, they have huge challenges uh, for academic uh, institutes. Um, and if you guys are interested, we can go a little bit into that in terms of uh, most of the clinics now are open flow concepts and you have these cubicles. So they present some um, significant challenges in terms of safety and how you can bring that about. So uh, I saw a question about uh, in your uh, handout about uh, costs. Um, so the cheapest one on this slide is about uh, 3,500 US dollars. Um, and the most expensive one is I think uh, this one. So it's about $140,000. Um, good spread and can do different things. Um, and again, depends on what you're starting with. I will point out that um, we classify lasers with different uh, systems. The, from the safety perspective, we classify them as class one, two, three, and four. Uh, and that is based on the power output at the source, not inside the laser device, but at the source. Uh, the other common way is what is your active medium uh, in which the light is being amplified. And diode means there is a diode inside, and there are some complicated uh, uh, elemental terms, gallium, aluminum, arsenide, or uh, helium, neon, which is a gas, or carbon dioxide, which is also, again, a gaseous media. So uh, you can name them according to either the active media, power output, or application, which is soft tissue or hard tissue slash all tissue. We suggest Another category, and this is based on the research that we've been doing in my lab um, and several other labs around the world, where uh, another good way of classifying them is contact lasers and non-contact lasers. Um, if you have handled a diode laser, you're, you have seen these laser tips, which need to be very gently placed on the tissue, and it basically melts the tissue. So we use the term pain brushing technique when we are using surgical lasers to cut. And these are diodes. Now, all these other units that are shown here are non-contact lasers. And that's, I think, classically what most of us think about. You know, a light shooting out and then from some distance, you're ablating tissue. And a CO2 laser is a classic example. Uh, very, very popular with oral surgeons and ENT surgeons, um, where they are some distance away from the tissue. And they're gently cutting with an invisible beam. Unfortunately, the fact that there are contact and non-contact lasers has caused some concern with training because as dentists and dentists-to-be, you're all training for tactile feel, you know, with your bars and your curettes, you're used to that tactile feedback. And as you can imagine, the challenge with the non-contact lasers is that you don't have that. And it is extremely, uh, we find that when we are talking about lasers for heart tissue excavation especially, uh, people are not very comfortable with not being in get, not having that haptic feedback. So uh, there are several innovations in the works where we are trying to include that. But I think uh, you will find that one of the ways that dental laser education will refer to these lasers is contact and non-contact, because we are trying to build that comfort level with non-contact, especially for heart tissue cuts. So that's uh, the different types of lasers. 
uh, here's an example of uh, a classic uh, erupting teeth uh, that needs to be exposed. It's called operculitis. You learn this, or you're going to learn this soon, or experience this, right? So it's it's rather painful as the teeth is coming out and you're uh, biting on your gum. Um, so a simple procedure like this, where you sim you can use a blade to do that, and as you know, the minute you touch uh, gingiva with a blade, it bleeds profusely. Especially you can imagine that an inflamed area, which has higher vascularity, will bleed even more. So when you use a laser, you're not only exposing the teeth very precisely, but you're also causing coagulation as you're cutting. And as you can see, again, um, there is uh, that coagulum that's being formed, the fibrin clot that's being formed. Now, even though, um, I don't know if you guys are already in the clinic and doing clinical cases, but this kind of an image usually alarms uh, new people who have never seen a laser uh, because we are used to seeing nice pink margins uh, after you finish cutting. And when you start seeing these brown colored tissue, you're like, what, the, what is this? What is this yellowish brown thing that we are seeing? Uh, but that is because you're actually promoting the coagulation and promoting the clotting. And as you can see, it heals really, really well. So this kind of healing is excellent compared to you know, blades and curettes. So this is, again, one of the things that we have noted. People who come into the laser field and are doing procedures, they get a bit alarmed when they finish a laser procedure and they see this. And they then go back and, you know, use a blade to make it nice and clean. Uh, but the point here is that it heals really well. And uh, you should not be alarmed because you're actually promoting the healing process. Here's another example. If you, can, uh, if you want to disinfect, uh, in this particular case, there's a uh, draining sinus from the implant that has been placed here. And in most of these cases, we will need to pull the implant, go in surgically and clean out that whole area. Uh, but having a laser diode handy, this is a, a, a professor here, Sebastiano Andriana, who basically had a diode laser handy and he was able to insert the diode tip into that draining sinus and periopically disinfect that region. This is just a histology showing you that uh, you have pus and you know, um, inflammatory cells. And you can see that the healing is excellent after this speak. So you can do surgical procedures, you can do disinfection, and hopefully these two cases show you the uh, simplicity of doing this. Uh, in most of the other cases, you'll have to do uh, prep the patient, you'll have to do you know, your hemostasis, and then follow up treatments. But with this, it's usually a one sitting procedure. It can accelerate some of your clinical procedures significantly. So uh, soft tissue lasers are extremely popular and hard tissue lasers are getting more popular. One of the unfortunate uh, limitations is the price. It's pretty expensive, as you can imagine. Um, and also the fact that you don't get that tactile feel. So a lot of people are not comfortable, even though they are initially trained to actually adopt it into their main practice. And that is why we strongly believe that dental students and the main curriculum is where we should introduce this concept, not as a CE course, not as a workshop, you know, uh, we should be introducing this right off the bat. Uh, the fact that this has, um, some of it is invisible or mid-infrared, uh, you can't see the light source. So there are some additional safety requirements that you have to implement for yourself, for your patient, and for your team. Uh, so that is something that you can also be a barrier if you're not familiar with the technology. So. Um, that again has been raised as one reason why lasers are not more popular. Uh, and like I said, it's, it's a little bit more challenging 
when you think of an academic environment where you want to implement this, uh, because you have you know open floors and you have many people in and out, so that becomes a little challenge. The advantage is, as you can imagine, you can precisely control both the depth and the width. Uh, think LASIKs in the eye. Uh, a lot of people who do aesthetic dentistry and gingival smile designs love this uh, tool because it improves their clinical outcomes dramatically. Uh, you can cut soft tissue, hard tissue with the same. You don't need bars and blades and curettes. One device potentially can do all of those treatments. Uh, like I said, it coagulates as it cuts. So one of the most dramatic videos is phrenectomy, lingual phrenectomies in babies who are born with tongue ties. Uh, it's a huge practice builder. You can imagine the baby uh, who cannot feed because of the tongue tie and alarms the mother, alarms the parents, and the dentist is very hesitant to operate on a baby for obvious reasons. Uh, but with this procedure, with very little anesthesia, you might actually cause more pain in anesthesia than the laser procedure. You not only can do a very quick surgical incision, but it doesn't bleed. And you can imagine that's a huge, huge uh, relief for patients and the parent who's watching that surgery. So some very dramatic YouTube videos. So if your audience is interested, uh, you can hear about that. And better healing is something that's been repeatedly uh, uh, talked about. And I'll talk a little bit about the non-surgical treatment. But uh, better healing is because uh, you, have, you probably are doing this right now. So if you take a blade or a curette and you try to clean an area, after the first uh, pass, you will see a pool of blood. And most of us will try to dab it and then go again and go again to make sure that you have you know, cleaned it or curetted it or excised it. So we are causing inadvertent damage because we are going with multiple passes. But with the laser, it's so precise and so clean. As you're cutting, you can see what you're cutting. Uh, you're causing less damage. You're causing less blood loss. And then there is an additional effect, the non-surgical effect, which assists with better healing. So all of these are uh, potential advantages of surgical lasers, both for soft tissue and for heart tissue. Uh, there are some myths with lasers as well. And uh, people say that lasers are very slow in the clinic. But as you know, laser is light is the fastest thing that we know of in the universe. There's nothing faster than light. Uh, so the fact that lasers in clinical practice is slow is a technique. It's nothing to do with the actual tool. A laser is a tool, right? So there, you must learn how to use the tool, just like we have learned how to use bars, drills, and you know, curettes and blades. So uh, I don't buy that, but I've heard this many times when we present this lasers for clinical practice. We talked about tactile feel, especially with the non-contact lasers. And we also briefly talked about the finish. Um, and this is not a hard tissue laser talk, but most people who do cutting will tell you that they need, especially in pediatric patients, they will tell you that they need less anesthesia. Some people with very superficial cavities don't use anesthesia. Uh, and that is because the kids prefer the popping noise versus a drilling vibration. So there are several pediatric dentists who practice exclusively with lasers and have great results for superficial caries, not for deeper caries. So these are the other um, thing. And just to emphasize that it is a tool. And like every other technology that you have in your clinical practice, a laser is something that you need to learn safety and the proper technique. So the other two sections of my talk are more for, uh, that is the mainstream laser use that most people are familiar with. Uh, the other two are probably more informational because it is not available in many countries, including the US. 
so I'll just talk about it. Some of it is research and there are some advances which will make, I think, by the time you guys practice in the next three to four years, it'll actually be available for you to use in your patient. So the first non-surgical treatment is photodynamic therapy. And there are two flavors to this treatment. One, where you're trying to destroy your tumor. And the other one, which is more relevant for dentistry specifically, is when you're trying to get rid of biofilms, antimicrobial. Now, photodynamic therapy, the sole goal, sole purpose of using non-surgical photodynamic therapy is to destroy the target, whether it's a tumor cell or a biofilm. And this occurs in a non-thermal manner. All of your surgical treatments are thermal in nature, which unfortunately have um, bystander effects. So whatever you're trying to do with the target, there is always some thermal transfer and you end up cauterizing or curating or thermally damaging the surrounding. So this one is completely non-thermal. And the way this works is we use a combination of a dye or a chromophore and light. And when you combine these two aspects, you can increase the um, signal to noise ratio. So it's like, uh, you know, all of us have done this experiment uh, where we have taken a magnifying lens and gone out in the sunlight and tried to focus the energy and burn things, right? That's what this uh, chromophore does. So it basically binds either your bug or a tumor cell. And then when you shine light, the energy gets focused on that target and does not damage the surrounding tissue. The way it actually kills its target is it generates uh, something called reactive oxygen species or ROS. And that basically destroys the target. So this is how uh, photodynamic therapy works. And as you can imagine, delivering light and a drug um, within a gingival pocket is challenging. Um, so people have come up with different kinds of modifications of how that light can enter, you know, deep locations and pocket anatomy. And you can see some images here. The reason this technique um, is you're going to hear a lot more of it um, soon is because this is a physical mechanism. It is based on the fact that a chromophore is binding its target and light is destroying it. This is not susceptible to the antimicrobial resistance that you hear about often. MRSAs and VREs, and now there are different strains of candida that are also resistant to normal um, antimicrobial therapy. Because this is a physical technique, there is tremendous success with these MRSAs and VREs being targeted with this treatment. And it's only a matter of time, and obviously these are done in chronic wounds, uh, athlete's foot, those kind of uh, medical situations. But dentistry is soon getting a lot, has to deal with all of these antimicrobial resistant bugs. And this treatment will become centrist. As you know, the, what we practice in our clinical settings are uh, the highest level of evidence. And you have seen that triangle where, you know, there are case reports, a clinician who's paying attention to what's happening in his patient uh, reports on a phenotype. And that's how we found uh, bisphosphonate-associated osteonecrosis of the jaw. A dentist actually was the first person to actually notice that they were getting necrosis around an implant and found out that this patient was on a new class of drugs, bisphosphonate. So that is the lowest but most important level of evidence in the clinical practice. And then someone does reports many cases, you get case series, and then you have to do randomized clinical trials. When you have a lot of randomized clinical trials, you put them together and do a systematic review and meta-analysis. And at this point, the evidence is strong enough 
for every one of us to actually practice this treatment. The reason I bring that up is photodynamic therapy as of 2015, this is the paper in uh, Journal of American Dental Association, JARA, which as you know, is a really prestigious journal. Uh, so for it to be published at this level means that the data is really sound. And they did a systematic review and meta-analysis where they found that uh, doing photodynamic therapy along with scaling and root planing can improve your clinical outcomes. So the clinical evidence has been established that this treatment can be helpful for your clinical outcomes. It's at the highest level of evidence. So um, the last treatment that I'd like to talk to you about is photobiomodulation, which is a non-surgical treatment. Uh, but before we talk about that, there is some confusion between PDT and PBM in the field. And because both of them are uh, using very low amounts of light, they are both non-thermal, and they are used for clinical treatments, clinical therapeutic benefit. The difference is that uh, in photobiomodulation, we don't use any dye. We just use light alone at very low doses. For PDT, as I said, we need to use either exogenous chromophores, a dye, or we can use endogenous chromophores. The amount of ROS that is necessary is very low in PBM compared to PDT. And the biological target or the response that we want is destruction in PDT. We are trying to destroy the biofilm, destroy the tumor cell. But in case of PBM, we are just trying to stimulate healing or reduce pain or inflammation. So that is the purpose of the two treatments. And that is why uh, I think the more uh, we hear about this, the more uh, we need to dis discriminate between what is your ultimate target and what are you trying to do. Uh, you will see there's a lot of confusion in perio with uh, people using diode lasers for disinfection, which is photothermal. Uh, they add a dye and they say it's PDT or PBM, but they're trying to destroy uh, biofilms, which is PDT. Um, so you will come across this literature. So the last treatment I'll talk to you about is uh, photobiomodulation, or it used to be called low-level light treatment. Uh, the purpose, as I just mentioned, is to either inhibit pain or inflammation or stimulate wound healing and regeneration. Um, people, when we present this uh, research and this area of work, people usually don't believe you right off the bat because they say we are not plants. Uh, we are not, uh, you know, uh, we cannot take light or sunlight and become healthier. But we do know that light has an important part in our health. You've all studied uh, you know, vitamin D metabolism in the skin. We know the precise biochemical steps that occur with sunlight, UV in sunlight. And that's been well-documented for your bone health and for your overall um, uh, wellness and health. Um, we also know that your ability to see these slides and you know, uh, use your eyes for vision is because you have a protein in your eye that can sense visible light and convert it into a biological signal. So that is also well established. No one questions that. So we are using light in many ways. And all of us are familiar with, uh, especially, I guess, Buffalo and Toronto, we don't get enough sunlight. And uh, the circadian rhythm and the seasonal affective disorders is a common problem for us. So we know that light is important for our psychological health. So here are examples of how light is important for your normal human physiology. And that hopefully makes the point that we can use light uh, for healing or therapeutic purposes. But uh, this particular treatment actually got started 
because they built um, the unit, the laser, uh, for the first time in the 1960s. And Charles Stone and Theodore Maiman are credited with this discovery. So when you build a medical device, the very first thing that you do is dose escalation studies, right? You turn it on to different doses and see if it does what it's supposed to do. And as you can imagine, surgical lasers were very, very popular. That's how they got their start. But this gentleman, uh, Dr. Andrea Mester, who was doing these wound healing studies on animals, was very surprised to see that very low amounts of laser light was able to stimulate hair growth and wound. And he called this photostimulation. If you look at this literature, uh, there are various terms to describe this treatment. Some of the more popular terms are cold laser treatment because it's a non-thermal process or low-level light treatment or low-level laser. Uh, as of 2015, uh, we have started calling this treatment photobiomodulation. And this is now a mesh term, a PubMed term, where all the literature is uh, included under this topic. Uh, and uh, the NLM, the National Library of Medicine, describes photobiomodulation as the use of non-ionizing source of photonic energy to generate non-thermal benefits. Uh, this is the larger definition, which I will not belabor you with. But the point here is that if you use the right amount of light, you can either inhibit negative processes, such as pain or inflammation, or an aberrant immune response. You're learning about autoimmune diseases, right? Uh, skin, lichen planus, and um, all these other, uh, uh, pemphigoid, pemphigus, all these uh, dermatological and mucosal diseases because the body turns on itself, autoimmune disorders. Uh, if you use the right amount of light, you can inhibit that response. At the same time, if you use a different protocol and a different delivery system, you can promote positive processes such as wound healing and tissue regeneration. So like we were just talking about, so where is the evidence? Sounds pretty cool. Um, and almost every movie for the last 50, 60 years has shown you a light gun or a, you know, the tricoder in Star Trek that heals you with light. So where is the evidence for this treatment? Is it just Hollywood? Um, and sure enough, uh, they have done systematic reviews and meta-analysis. And um, this is a list of human clinical treatments that have benefited from PBM. And it is pretty fantastic, I think. I mean, it's unbelievable that light can cure, potentially cure or manage diseases, chronic diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Uh, it can also help patients who have concussion or TBI. Um, and of course, you've heard about light treatments for skin rejuvenation, arthritis, and wound healing. Uh, dentistry is particularly very uh, involved with this because some of the best clinical evidences for photobiomodulation comes from the field of oral mucositis. And this is a condition where you have ulcers and pain in your mouth in patients who are undergoing cancer treatments, such as chemotherapy or radiation or transplants. So people have done um, light treatments preventively in these patients who are getting radiation and chemo and have found that light can be used very effectively to prevent or reduce the incidence of mucositis. And this is the one specific application that I think uh, by the time you guys practice, this is things that your patient will come to you asking or your oncology colleagues will ask you to do this treatment before they give them cancer treatments. So this is one area that's really, really, and this is again, evidence at the highest level 
where we have a systematic review and meta-analysis by MASC, the Multinational Association for Supportive Care in Cancer. So very prestigious organization, and these guys know what they're talking about. So uh, I, we are hoping that this dentist uh, will actually adopt this treatment. Uh, I'll end with this final case where, uh, again, because of cancer treatments, uh, unfortunately, uh, we're trying to cure the tumor, but we cause all kinds of other complications. So this one patient came to us with uh, fibrosis of the jaw, Christmas, uh, because he was getting radiation for his oral cancer. And he had like two millimeters mouth opening. And as you can see in this image here, he can barely open his mouth. Unfortunately, that also limited his hygiene procedures. And he had several curious stuff that had to be taken care of urgently. So by doing photobiomodulation, we were able to increase his mouth opening from two millimeters to 16 millimeters, along with physiotherapy and other exercises. And as you can see here, you can actually uh, do, you can in introduce a very small uh, micromotor and do dental uh, procedures. So this basically uh, is a brand new treatment, and uh, this is actually my personal research. So most of my research lab, I run a clinical research lab, and we do human clinical trials, and we also do basic science. One of the major focuses of our research is to try and promote dental stem cells to form dentine. You've heard about pulp capping with calcium hydroxide and MTA. We are trying to do it with lasers. And uh, this is just an image of showing you that we are trying to generate osteodentine inside the pulp. And these are experiments where we do controlled amount of laser treatment, non-surgical photobiomodulation treatment, and find that we can stimulate the amount of osteodentine inside the teeth. And these are just some uh, popular press stories uh, showing you that this treatment is in the process of becoming a clinical treatment. So that's all I have for you. Uh, these are the mechanisms. There are several mechanisms of photobiomodulation. And again, I won't belabor you with the details, but we do understand how this treatment works. Just like rhodopsin in the eye, there are very specific molecular uh, targets that can be activated. And it's getting a lot of attention from, uh, at least in the US, from policymakers who are asking questions because their uh, constituents ask them, like, what is this treatment? Can we use it for concussion? Can we use it for opioid uh, de-addiction? Because it activates endogenous uh, morphogen, uh, opioids in the body. So there's a lot of interest in this area. And, uh, and I just use this uh, slide to actually uh, point to the fact that many treatments that began as observations in clinical practice, everything from drilling holes in people's heads to stretching people mechanically, to removing large parts of the brain, lobotomies, are all practiced in modern medicine. The only difference is that we understand the context in which to do these procedures. Uh, we drill holes in people's heads for elevated CSF pressure. We relieve that pressure by drilling a very specific hole. We are using, as you know, mechanics in orthopedics as well as orthodontics to move tissues and change stuff. And um, we are actually ablating. Uh, very, very specific areas in the brain with high-powered lasers that cause seizures. And you can see these areas by doing a functional MRI. So all of these things which look like science fiction are now clinical practice because we understand how they work and where we can use them. So lasers is in similar position where you can use the laser for many different things in dentistry, everything from surgical, which is mainstream, to all of these other procedures. Um, 
And it, I think people who work in this field think that a laser will very soon be a standard part of your dental chair. So you'll have a laser pretty much on every chair, whether it's a diode or one of the hard tissue units. And uh, you can just pull it up and do many of these procedures, which you do routinely anyways. So that's my spiel. That's my whole uh, lasers part. And then you guys have any other questions or follow up? I love hearing your vision of how you see lasers being incorporated into dentistry. Um, the idea that, you know, this should be incorporated in a chair one day. And um, I could spend hours listening to you talk about each of the different applications for lasers and sorting these these applications out in our head as, as dental students. It's good to get this introduction because I mean, for me, I didn't even understand the difference between like PDT and PDM, as you were saying. Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, a question that I had was um, when you talk about the PDT application um, and you're using a chromophore dye for these tissues, um, how exactly would that work in a patient? I'm just curious how you... No, uh a couple of uh, a couple of good examples are actually from the tumor field where for oral cancer cells they have been targeting the surface molecule with a dye a nanoparticle if you will and it goes and binds to the tumor cell very specifically and when you give the right amount of light you can destroy that tumor cell very nicely with biofilms as you can imagine it's a little more complicated because there are so many bugs right there are so many different targets and we do not, and we have learned this the hard way, we do not want to wipe out all the bugs. That's a very bad idea. Uh, so what we want to do is selectively change them. And this is this whole concept of probiotics and prebiotics, where we want to change the flora in such a way that we can reduce the pathogenic disease-causing bug. So people are working on targeted strategies on different like caries-causing bugs or periodontal pathogens. You just inject the dye in the general space and it will selectively bind to the target that you're interested in. Then you shine light on everybody, but only the targeted area is getting the most energy and gets destroyed. So by simply changing the amount of the bad bugs versus the good bugs, we should be able to at least mitigate the disease, if not inhibit it completely. And then you speak of when it comes to PBM, on the other hand, we're using um, a different level of energy and a different goal in mind, and this is to stimulate um, healing and um, I guess positive things that come from themselves. Um, and you said it's a it's a molecular basis for the stimulation. Could you, in a very general explanation, maybe go into what that would be since it has so many applications right. um, and all these different tissues? Right. So because PBM can do so many different things, uh, it unfortunately has had a bad uh, reputation, if you will that how can you use light to cure something in your brain, something in your lung, and something in your foot? How can you do that? Yeah. Uh, and the reason for that is because there are multiple mechanisms in action. So one of the most well-understood mechanism for PBM is an enzyme in the mitochondria called cytochrome C oxidase. This enzyme normally will increase ATP and ROS in your electron transport function. But turns out, just like rhodopsin in the eye, this molecule is light sensitive. So when you shine light on this molecule within a given group of cells, they get stimulated. They increase ATP and ROS transiently, and therefore you get beneficial effects. 
There are other uh, light-sensitive receptors, such as these uh, names, Europsins, TRPV1, which are present on neurons. And when you use the right wavelength of light and the right dose, you can inactivate the neuronal firing. So you stop transmission of pain. And that's how the pain mechanism works. Now, the third mechanism, which was discovered in my lab, is this growth factor called TGF-beta-1. This growth factor is present in the milieu around cells. It's not actually inside the cell. But when you activate this growth factor in the right context, you're increasing its ability to bind its receptor and bring about a specific response. So when you shine light or in a particular context, you're actually using one of these mechanisms. And that is the really important part. When I showed you that image in the end about different contexts in which procedures are done, this is why PBM works in so many different contexts, is because there are multiple mechanisms that are in play. Do you think, as of now, we understand all the different um, molecular targets that could be uh, used for li with light? Because, I mean, there's so many, and I, I can just imagine we don't quite know even what we could target with it. Right. So... Um... This is the big paradox in the field. So this is a simple point and shoot treatment. You take your light source, as long as you do it within the right range, you point it at your patient, and then the biology does the rest of it. So this is the biggest paradox in the field where the treatment is very easy to do. And we use you know, light devices, just lamps of light, which don't even have to be lasers. They can even be LEDs. And you can do this treatment very easily. The complexity is the mechanisms. And this paradox is the reason why this treatment has a bad reputation for being inconsistent. People have tried to do this in all around the world, and they find that, you know, the Brazilian group gets great success with mucositis, but the American group gets great success with skeletal muscular performance. And why is that? Because they're using light as light anywhere, wherever you go in the world. So why are you getting differences is because of the mechanisms that we are invoking. Um, unfortunately, there are so many different devices that uh, if you don't use it well, it's like any other tool or technology. If you don't know how to use it, um, uh, and I, we give this example. We are actually writing a couple of uh, book chapters on this. Um, you can remove calculus with a drill, and you can remove caries with a curette. But would you do that? You would not, right? It doesn't make any intuitive sense because of the con collateral damage the ease of doing those procedures. But you can. You think about it. You can take a curette and remove caries. And you can do the same thing with calculus. So uh, in a dental context, hopefully it highlights the fact that it is a tool and you need to know how to use it and where to use it, the biology. So as future practitioners, where could we look to learn you know, what instruments to use? And is there maybe a working group or some group that we could join to understand these things? Right. That's a great question. So uh, we very strongly believe that this should be taught in dental curriculum, mainstream dental curriculum. Uh, uh, after, what, seven years of being in Buffalo, we finally have a course that is being offered to the fourth-year dental students uh, in the main curriculum. We used to be a elective, and now we are a part of the main curriculum. There are, I think, uh, we did a survey and found that 14 different schools in the U.S. and Canada offer this laser dentistry either as an elective or as a part of the curriculum, usually perio or implants. Um, so that is where I would strongly recommend thinking about where I would start. 
The next good best thing is the CE programs by academic institutes. Uh, those are also usually well vetted and the content is much better um, uh, con conflict-free, if you will. Um, then there are organizations that are dedicated to either surgical lasers in dentistry and medicine, such as American Society for Lasers in Surgery and Medicine, or the Academy of Laser Dentistry, or the World Federation of Laser Dentistry. These are organizations that teach you surgical lasers. They also now have begun to do non-surgical PDT and PBM. So a simple Google search will make you, uh, will get you that information about different organizations dedicated. For photobiomodulation specifically, uh, there are dedicated organizations that offer training. And as of this month, we are actually writing position papers that should be the foundation for training curriculum. Right now, we are still pulling papers and trying to teach uh, different applications. But once we have position papers, all that information will be collated so that it can be a offered and this all of this will be freely available on the internet so any institution can use that curriculum and develop their own program i will end by i did want to say that unfortunately or fortunately the most then laser training now is offered by the company uh, and we are glad they're offering some training because otherwise you would just be given a tool uh, and as you can imagine there are some conflicts there and there are certain biases so um, that is probably your best bet. So most people who buy a laser are automatically given the training on that unit, which is great because they know their unit the best. But the information that they provide because there is no other source is a little bit biased, as you can imagine. It's more about what they want to be marketing and what they're selling. So those are the levels of training. And we really hope there is an ADEA group dedicated to lasers in dentistry. And we just recently formed an AADR group AADOCR group um, that is now beginning to do lasers in dentistry. Fantastic to hear there are this many groups. <laughs> it was just such a pleasure to hear all that you had to say about lasers coming into this. I have like definitely a very baseline knowledge of what lasers did, but it was such a treat to see where lasers are going in dentistry and seeing, I guess, for ourselves when we do graduate out of DDS, what is out there to apply in our own practice when we're working, looking for associateships, like where this can go in terms of tech? It is usually uh, something that you mentioned, associateships. Uh, several of our senior students now are more competitive because they are familiar with this technology, just like digital scanning and cone beam CT. It's almost assumed that, you know, a new dentist coming out is familiar with it. But they don't have to be experts, but at least they know what this thing is. And uh, a lot of them find that, you know, being trained in lasers is a huge plus. Um, so, yeah, absolutely recommend that your audience actually look at the technology. That's great. It's awesome. Sci-fi is becoming, you know, real life. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I just wanted to say on behalf of the three of us, thank you so much, Dr. Arani. It has been such a pleasure having you here with us today. And as usual, if anyone was more interested in learning about lasers or what we're doing at OTC, we'll be including the links on our Spotify episode description, as well as on the main on the CUSP page on the Debbie website.